0: to see you next week. So please fill that out for me. If I could have the ushers come forward, and if you guys are gonna need uh, sermon notes or a Bible, please raise your hand and they'll get that to you. Um, So I'm not Nate, Uh, as you can tell. If it was, he grew a beard and gave up the hype for the beard. Um, But I'm actually here because the next few weeks we're gonna be showing some videos that we shot with interviews from the kids at the Axiom. Um, This is our spring pledge drive. If you guys listen to NPR or as you can hear, the pledge part of it, um, we're gonna be hacking Emmaus and popping up every now and then to ask for you guys to consider becoming a monthly donor. Um, And also, if you guys would see anything on Facebook, anything on Emmaus' Facebook page, anything that's talking about Axiom, please share it with your friends. We really want to get a lot of exposure. So, thank you so much, and here's Nate.
1: Good job. Well, welcome. The Axiom, in case that's a new word for you, is a youth center that we started in August. It's its own organization, its own nonprofit, but our church backed it to begin, and a lot of you volunteer there and support there. And Carlos is full-time at the Axiom and just doing a great job. There's 40 to 50 kids showing up uh, every day, and f- except for Fridays when it's more like 80 or 90 because he feeds them. Yes. <clears throat> All right. Good, welcome. Um, glad you're here. We're in James, if you'd like, uh, open your Bible to James, it's towards the end of uh, the Bible, a small little letter there, right in front of a couple letters called Peter, and uh, we'll also be in Matthew 13 for a minute, there's a parable there in Matthew 13, and if you have the Bible that was handed out, and you get to James fast, shout out the number for me, because I forgot to write it down, that'll help some folks find it. All right, people are still hunting for James. Where's James? 847? Thanks. 847 if you're in the Bible that we handed out. A uh, little letter by James, which I'll talk to you more about in just a second. You know that feeling that you get when um, you realize that you're approaching something and it's totally different from the way somebody else is approaching it? You, you have that feeling like maybe you're having, this, you're having a conversation with somebody that you care about and you're talking about the same thing and you saw the same thing happen. You're, you're wrestling with the same general issue the story basically is the same story that you're talking about, and yet somewhere along that conversation you come to the point where you recognize they just have a totally different take on this than I do. They have a totally different approach to this than I do. You know what I'm talking about? If you, if you don't know that feeling, then read the epistle by James. Read James's letter, because James has this approach to life and faith that, frankly, is just totally confrontational. It's just a different approach than the approach that I typically or commonly take to, to the faith. He's approaching it differently. And if you haven't felt that kind of dissonance that comes with realizing, man, he's talking about Jesus, I'm talking about Jesus, but we seem to be talking about Jesus in a totally different way, read James and you'll feel it. Um, like for instance, there's an example of this. On Tuesday morning, we have a men's Bible study on Tuesday morning, and we were talking about James, and we were talking about last week's sermon on temptations and trials, and Ryan George, who's part of that group, he said, it's almost like James sees temptations and trials as a good thing. He's glad we're facing temptations and trials because he he knows that there's going to be maturing and growth that happens through the temptations and trials. It's just a great example of a different approach to the same thing. We see temptations and trials and we're like, oh no, not another one, right? Let's get away from that as far as I can. Let me avoid the temptation, the trials. Let me avoid the hard time as as, um, aggressively as I can. Let me do anything that I can to to stay away from it. But that's how James sees trials, that's how James sees hard times, it's not how we typically see hard times, we typically avoid them. And it's because we're seeing things differently, we're approaching things differently, really differently. And that's just the way it is. We come to the Bible from the position of our culture, we bring our culture to it, our cultural perspective, and that's why I think sometimes the Bible's so hard to understand. Because we're reading the Bible from our perspective, we're approaching the Bible as we want to approach it. But if you can get a glimpse into the author's world, if you can get a peek into the world of the original audience, into what was happening to those people to whom the letter was originally written, then that can just sort of open your eyes and click some things into order that usually, or b- before that, became uh, pretty confusing. So I've been reading a couple of books on James and specifically about how James's letter to the church was the christian church was initially received was regarded early on in the history of the church and it's been fascinating and here's what i've learned early christians um let's see we're doing this series called now do this i forgot to show you that and this is week two so early christians used james's letter as a manual for spiritual warfare I had not heard that before, yet it's, it's uh, clearly, it's the, you read the early church authors, and this is how they regard it. The author writes, um, one author writes that the most significant feature of James is that it is to be read as a survival manual for Christians who are experiencing hard times. Uh, one of the ancient groups that uses the book of James or James's letter most frequently are uh, early Christian monks. I think this is so interesting. If you've hung around me at all lately, you know I have a total fascination with with monks. Um, but in other words, if you were an academic, then you were and you're occupied by theological debates. Then your writings are full of scriptures about doctrinal fine points, those kinds of things. If, on the other hand, you are into politics or government, then your early 1st century, 2nd, 3rd century writings, if they quote the Bible at all, so maybe more 4th, 5th century writings, they're going to quote Bible passages about order and peace and structure and submission and things like that. But if you're a monk, if you're a monk and if you're committed, your whole life is committed to the formation of your soul, if you see prayer as your primary work and you see work primarily as a way to pray, well, you loved James. You loved James. You're quoting James all over the place. You're reading James all day long, you're soaking in James, you're quoting James, because that's what James is about. James is like a first century playbook for spiritual athletes. James is kind of like, if you're in this situation, this down and distance, you run this play, why do I run that play? No, 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 no! I don't have time to do. ask Paul why. I'm just going to tell you what to do. Right? Just if you're in this situation, do this. That's kind of the attitude and the approach and the urgency that you feel with James. Just do this, James. And it's because of this, because James is writing for Christians who are engaged in spiritual warfare. That might sound too Frank Peretti, but intense spiritual um, crisis or adversity or tough times, or trials, or temptations. And that's why I think James seems a little bit intense when we when we read him. Our culture is very spiritual, I would argue, but I would also argue that we're into a kind of a spirituality of comfort. We're interested in an increasingly comfortable life. So we're interested in spirituality kind of like we're interested in holistic living. And if adding a little Christianity to my life will make my life more holistic, well, I'll try it, kind of like I'll try yoga for a while. Sure, whatever it takes. Just sort of, but that's not who James is writing to, not people who are trying to look for some sort of add-on to their already pretty nice life. No, James is writing to people who are facing really hard things, And he's writing to tell them how to survive those really hard things without losing their faith in Jesus. He's just going right at it. He's he's writing to people who are facing temptations and trials. And he's saying, here's how you can get through these temptations and trials with your soul intact. Um, It's not an add-on. He's talking about essentials. And Christians so commonly in the first century, James's letter is written about 60 or 70 A.D., Christians are so commonly facing really challenging realities that the letter that James writes just gets handed around to the whole church, just to Christians everywhere. It's like people read this little letter and like, man, this is really good, this is really helpful, everybody's got to read this. And so it becomes the first letter of the Christian church that's just generally um, distributed. It's not like the letter to the Romans or the letter to the Corinthian church or the letter to the Ephesian church. It's the letter to the whole church, the first one, and it's really, really widely used. So last week we focused on James' instruction to those facing hard times, temptation, uh, trials. And this is what he said. He said, if you need wisdom, ask God. He will give generously to all without finding fault. That's the summary of last week's. If you lack wisdom, the assumption is you're facing a hard time and you need wisdom. That's his assumption. So it's a rhetorical question, because of course you need wisdom. If you need wisdom, he said, ask. Ask for it. And then three things. God will give generously, he'll give to everybody, and he'll give without finding fault. And otherwise, you haven't, other words, you haven't disqualified yourself with your stupidity um, to receiving wisdom from God. He still wants to give you wisdom. And so the question I asked Or was asked most after last week's sermon is, okay, after I've asked for God's help, how do I hear it? If I've asked for God's guidance, how do I hear God's answer? Which, of course, is a real challenge. Um, And we'll commit a whole teaching to that in a few weeks, because I think it's really worth trying to address wholly. But I'll begin to answer that question today by addressing probably the most difficult part of the process of hearing God. I think the most difficult part of the process of hearing God is developing the posture that is necessary in order to hear God. Okay? It's establishing and nurturing the condition of the heart which is needed in order to hear God. In other words, it's finding that space, finding that state of being that is essentially the prerequisite for hearing and we tend to think, oh, man, just tell me how to do it. Just get to the three easy steps. Just show me what to do. And that's, that's part of our problem. That's part of our problem. This is not a technique. This is not IKEA instructions, no words, just pictures, right? A dummy can do it with a piece of tape or whatever when you're building your bookshelf that falls apart. We're talking about spiritual discernment. That's what we're talking about. So you can't reduce it to a technique, it just can't happen. James is going to tell us what to do, and I'll try to address that from a technique standpoint in the next few weeks in part. But what he's really going to focus on is what we're going to focus on today is the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is this. Are you ready and willing to embrace what God says? That's really the heart of the issue. Not to consider what he says as one of several opinions that you'll, just, you'll weigh out to decide which one you like better but to seek his words as the words of life, as the one opinion that matters the most, and are you willing to respond in obedience to what he says, whether you like what he says or you don't? Last week I asked a series of questions, and one of them was, why don't we ask God for wisdom more often? Why don't we ask God for wisdom uh, first when we come into a room? And I think that I wondered out loud is one of the reasons that we really don't want to know what he thinks. We really don't want to get God's wisdom about X, Y, and Z. Oh, I love God's wisdom about the situation in which I'm totally stuck. I have no idea what to do. But in terms of this situation where I do know what I want to do, or my business where I, can, I know I can kind of do this and get advanced, do I really want to know what God wants me to do in that situation? I think sometimes we don't ask because we really don't want to know. James says in several ways and in a few specific places that in order to hear what God says you need to first want to do what God says, before you even know what he's going to say. It's like a prerequisite to hearing is a willingness to follow through on what he says. Here's just one example of how James says this. It's in the middle of the first chapter of James. I'll summarize the argument at this point. Um, he's addressing the idea of all these competing opinions, all these competing viewpoints. Everyone's got a view. Everyone's got an opinion. We're really quick to state our opinions, and then we're quick to defend our opinions, and we can get really emotional about our our opinions, and most of the reasons that people leave the church are because somebody has an opinion about this, and somebody else has a different opinion about this, and then it gets personal, and then anger happens, and then division happens, and James is saying God doesn't like any of that. God doesn't like any of that that when, when that happens. And so into that argument, James inserts this statement. He says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. He was talking about varying opinions and division and anger. Those are pretty safe words, but he doesn't use safe words. He says, get rid of moral filth and evil, which is just very James of him to say that. And then here's the focus of the morning. He says, now humbly accept the word. Humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Humbly accept the word. Another translation puts it like this. Welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. So the posture of the heart that is critical if you're going to grow in hearing God, in discerning his guidance, is the desire to welcome the word. To welcome the word. Not to consider it simply not to evaluate whether or not you agree with it but to welcome it to embrace it to let it take root in your soul to throw your whole life into union with the word to welcome the word let me walk through a a few really cool metaphors or images actually there that are in this statement from james the first image that james evokes here is this image of seeds being planted in good soil or in, in in dirt he says humbly accept the word that is planted in you did you see that Meekly welcome the implanted word. I think this is really interesting. James is the brother of Jesus. This clearly evokes, in my mind, and probably many of yours, a story that Jesus tells about soils. It's a parable, it's a story that he tells intended to make a point. Jesus talks about this, and it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Parable of a sower or a farmer who spreads seed into all kinds of different soils. And he mentions four. Some of the seed lands on a path and some of it lands on a rocky ground, a shallow soil full of rocks. And some of it lands among thorns and some of, the, some of the seed lands in good soil. He's talking about seed as the word of God. He's saying it's like we're preaching the word and the word lands in these four kinds of contexts. And what's unique about this parable that Jesus preaches is that he actually explains it. And he doesn't often explain his parables. He kind of wants you to dig, and he never really tells you the answer. But here, thankfully, he does. He kind of unpacks it for his disciples. And this is essentially what he says it means. He says, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom of God and does not understand it, remember that, does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed, he's explaining his parable, this is the seed sown along the path. That's the first kind of soil. The seed falling on rocky ground, that's the second kind, refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. It's the second kind. Here's a third kind. The seed falling among the thorns is seed sown in Placer County. That's basically what he's going to say right here. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So it grows there, but it doesn't do any good there. It doesn't produce fruit. But the seed falling on good soil, here's the ideal for Jesus, refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160, 30 times what was sown. Now, the ideal here for Jesus, he says it twice, is this idea of understanding, which is really challenging for me. He says, if anyone doesn't understand... It's because of these three reasons, path, rocks, thorns. If anyone does understand, well, there's the evidence of the good soil, and and there's going to be fruit as a result. The confusing part, stick with me here, the confusing part is our understanding of the word understand. It can sound like it's all about intellectual ability, but that's, of course, not what Jesus is talking about. The root of the word that is translated understand is a word that means to unify, to integrate, to do something with, to act upon. And so it's the same idea. Jesus is talking about the same idea that James, his little brother, is talking about when James says, humbly accept the word, or welcome with meekness the implanted word. It's not about intellectual understanding. It's not about that. It's about action. It's about welcoming the word. It's about unifying your life with the word. It's about integrating the word into your life, into the way you do life, the way you live life. It's about doing something with the word. So to understand in Jesus' vernacular is not this cognitive intellectual assent. Oh, that makes sense to me. That's not to understand from Jesus' perspective is to, to integrate a concept with your lifestyle. Right? It's to fully envelop it like seed in dirt. So that's the first idea. Like good soil with seed, humbly accept the word planted in you. That's what James says. And then James gives us kind of the, the reason why we should do this. And here's the second image. He says, it can save your soul. He says, it has the power to save your souls. And this introduces this second image. And it's this image of joyful freedom, this image of salvation, this image of being rescued, this image of running freely into salvation. Remember, James is a manual for those who are in spiritual warfare. So he's not talking about, hey, this is a nice little addition to your life. He's talking about you're stuck, you're being tempted, and you're in a hard time. And I'm going to tell you how to bust free from all of that stuff. I'm going to tell you how to live free and to run and to truly live even in the midst of real, actual persecution and adversity. As I welcome the word, as I unify my life with the word, as I integrate my life with the word my soul my essence my very being James says is going to come alive i'm going to begin to breathe i'm going to begin to live and to run where i'm going to run into salvation right i'm going to be rescued i'm going to fully live and i think this is so critical to point out friends because we often or maybe at least we sometimes see the word and living according to the word is restrictive Oh, man, I would do this, except the Bible says this, and now it's so confining. Uh, it's, It's so restrictive of me. And I think this is the way our culture maybe sees the word, but it's certainly not the way the faithful who have gone before us have seen the word not as restrictive. I've told you before that I have this sort of personal tradition of reading Psalm 119 on my birthday. It's this big, beautiful prayer in the Psalms by David. And I started this a long time ago. I think this year was my 22nd year in a row that on the morning of my birthday, I'll read this Psalm, Psalm 119. And the theme of the Psalm is this. David is like, I love the word. I just love the word. It rescues me. It guides me. I, I long for the word. I think about the word. I, I can't wait to employ the word and to, and, and to submit my life to the word. And the word has afflicted me, and it's been hard, but it's also given me all kinds of life. And at one point in, in verse 32, he says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Isn't that interesting? That's not the way we see the word commonly. We see the word as, oh man, I lived according to your word and my whole life was so confined. But that's not David at all. He's not like, oh, your your, your, your word boxes me in. He's like, no, I run in the path of your commands because your word has set my heart free. I just love that. It testifies to the very opposite of kind of a cultural view of the word, which is that God's word sets our heart free. God's word sets us into salvation. This is what James has experienced. This is why he's welcomed the word and, it is, and his life has come alive as he's welcomed the word. The word has the power to save your soul, he says. And he's not just talking about going to another place when you die. He's talking about coming alive and living in that freedom, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of pain and grief and real hard times. Remember, he's talking to people who are experiencing really hard times. So, James evokes these biblical images of soil, welcoming and integrating the Word, and this image of running freely. That's, my, that's the hope. That's what's going to happen when I do embrace the Word. And then I would add a third image that I've been carrying around for the last month or so as I've been studying James. And I've really been challenged, as I said when I started, by James's approach to the faith because I've recognized that his approach and my approach to the faith are, are different. His approach to Christianity challenges my approach to Christianity. There are several things about James's approach that I go, oh, wow, and, and I got to be truthful about my approach and see if I'm really sort of falling in line with what is a faithful Christian response, and this is it. One of the ways that he's challenged me, and it's the third image I'd offer this morning, is this image of a full embrace. The image of just this full embrace. It's the image of this journey of anticipation that finds its full satisfaction in a wholehearted suffocating hug. My wife, Carmen, and I dated for about three and a half years, and most of that time we were long distance, and so we had many happy reunions, but also lots of seasons of being separated. And, and uh, the, one, the one reunion that I remember most, in fact, I think it's the only one that I remember, which is really interesting to me, uh, comes after a, a long period of time, like nine months, where we hadn't seen each other, and we planned to meet in california i would travel from chicago she would travel from mexico we would meet at her parents house and um, it'd be the first time in nine months that we would have seen each other and i remember driving into the driveway parking my car and my heart's bumping like a thousand times a minute and i knock on the door and i hear her before i see her right? i hear her running down the hall and then the door opens up and then all of a sudden she's in my arms. Like she leaps from the door, like in through the air, and then it's like this full embrace. And, um, and here's why I think I remember that. Here's why I think I remember that. Because of the posture of my heart. I think I remember that embrace because of the posture of my heart. See, we had been through this angst-ridden college season of, I don't know, should we get married? There's all these factors that seem to not work with our futures and how are we gonna make it work out and should, should we, should we not, should we, should not? But God had brought me, personally, I didn't know about her because we decided it was getting so exhausting we're gonna stop talking about it. So, but God had brought me, seriously, God had brought me to a point of full resolve that I was gonna, I was gonna orient my life around her. And I knew that. I knew that when I knocked on that door. I knew that driving to her house. I knew it flying from Chicago to California. That didn't matter where it ended up, San Jose, Mexico, didn't matter what the details were. God had brought me to a place of resolve where it didn't matter what the details were. The posture of my heart was, I am going to orient my whole life around this person. And because the posture of my heart was that, I I remember that embrace. It was probably the first wholehearted embrace. So that has challenged me because I want to face the Word. I want to embrace and approach the Word in a way that looks more like that ready to change whatever, ready to do whatever it takes to put into practice the truth that God says to me. And so when I hear James say humbly accept the word, when I hear James say welcome the word, I think of a soil in good, or a seed in good soil. I think of this free runner just living into freedom. And I think of this wholehearted embrace, and I think of it all kind of wrapped into one. And this is how I want to approach God's word. And this is how I think I'm called to approach God's word. I think we're all called to approach God's word like this, because that's the posture of the heart that hears God, and that's the posture of the heart that is able to receive direction from God. All right, James begins this word of instruction by saying, get rid of moral filth, get rid of the evil that's so prevalent. In other words, clear the junk out. You can't hear me if there's all this noise. You can't discern holiness. If your life is full, your mind is full of bitterness and greed pornographic images and me first thinking. You've got to separate yourself from that stuff. You can't hear my channel if all those other channels are turned away up. So get rid of that and then humbly accept God's word which can save you. And of course we want to say, well how do I do that then, James? How do I do that? And he goes right to it. The very next sentence he tells us. And he says by basically by doing what it says. By doing what it says. It's very plain. You're in a battle. You need God's wisdom. James is like, ask for it, accept it, do it. Seems overly simplistic to me, but it's not if you're in a battle. That's what you do. I need direction. Ask for it, accept it, and then do it. James's instruction evokes all kinds of metaphors for me. It evokes all kinds of images, soil running freely, wholehearted embrace. But he doesn't actually use metaphors, which is interesting. He just goes right at it. He says it plainly. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. And so the challenge is to allow James's approach to life and faith to shape our approach to life and faith. To recognize that hearing God's word, picture it as a before, during, and after thing, just final comment. Hearing God's word has a lot to do with the before, with the posture of your heart with the willingness and the readiness to receive what he's going to say, regardless of what he says. It has a lot to do with the posture of your heart before he speaks. Recognize also that it has a lot to do with your follow through with what he speaks. See? With actually putting into practice what he says. We want to boil it down to just tell me what it is, Because we don't want to be held accountable to our preparation, nor do we want to actually have to do what he says. We just want to hear what he says and evaluate it based on our own terms. And we wonder why it's so hard for us to have spiritual discernment. James challenges us, prepare your heart. Before I even speak to you, prepare your heart to be ready and willing to do whatever I say. And then as soon as I say it, act. Do it. Put it into practice about understanding God's word. It's much more about submitting to God's word. It's about standing under God's word. So now, do this. Welcome the word. Welcome the word. May you honestly consider your approach to God's word, and may you welcome God's word with your whole heart. Uh, whenever you read it, and I hope you're in a pattern, early in the morning. Oh my goodness, I gotta read the Bible. No, like, welcome the word. Uh, Before you go to bed with your children, by yourself, welcome the word. Let James' approach to the word challenge your approach. And watch their spiritual ears begin to open up as you change your approach to the word and you just begin to embrace it. Wholeheartedly, full on, orient my life around this. Let's pray together. I just think of all the noise, Lord. There's just so much noise, and there's so many responsibilities, and just on and on. And uh, sometimes I think it's no wonder that we don't hear, and uh, it's so wonder that no wonder you don't make sense to us. Um, I also am so aware of some significant pain in this room and real challenges, real temptations, real trials, and I know people are desperate in this room to hear from you. So we got the whole gamut, life going great and life falling apart, and I just ask for the grace that we need to recognize the amazing gift that we have in a relationship with you and in the written word given to us, and in the way your Holy Spirit can interact between that relationship and the word and, and bring it alive, alive to us. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who feels like, oh, I don't even have a relationship with God, and I pray, God, that you'd welcome them in, that you would open their heart up to the, the gift of what they were intended to receive, this, this life in relationship with God through Christ. And I pray for those of us who have embraced this relationship for a long time, maybe just need our approach adjusted or challenged. And I pray, God, that we would recognize just how powerful and amazing this opportunity is to be in dialogue with our Creator. I pray for help, Lord. Grace and courage to welcome your word, regardless of what you say, to live it out, to be your people here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. amen. Good. Why don't you stand up with me for a minute? We want to greet and welcome each other to church. Christianity happens in community, and that's why this is important to do as part of our worship. So after you stretch, was that hard to listen to? A lot of stretching going on. Um, So after you stretch out, say good morning to each other. Welcome each other. May the peace of Christ be always with you. Thank you. We are not done. We will come back, and we'll spend some time soaking in this and worshiping God.